All right. Um, do you know someone who has a wild story of coming to faith? It's not everybody, but do you know someone who has uh, a dramatic story of being stuck in darkness and they were found by Jesus, brought into his light, and dramatically changed? About eight or nine years ago, it was uh, my first year on staff with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the campus ministry I work with, and I met two guys named Sean and Terry. And when I met them, they had just come to faith a couple months before. Before coming to faith, Sean's goal was to be the number one drug dealer in Florida. I don't remember which drug he wanted to be number one in, or if he just wanted to be like best all around or like best in show. Um, but it was his ambition. And through a series of dramatic events, Sean and his friend Terry came to faith. And I remember sitting down with them and hearing their story of how God turned around their lives. And I remember being so encouraged, even though honestly they were really rough around the edges, theologically speaking, God had powerfully and dramatically found them, come into their life, saved them, turned them around. It was clear God was at work. They were so transformed by what God had done that they found they pulled up their entire contact list on their phone and they called everyone who wasn't a Christian, which was pretty much everybody on their contact list, and they told them about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for them. They had to tell everybody. They had to call everybody. There was such an urgency in their faith in the midst of the dark pit that they had been brought out of that they wanted everybody to know about the light of Jesus. They wanted everybody to be set free. They wanted everybody to be healed and to experience the same Jesus that they had experienced. In today's gospel reading in John, we see a story of a dramatic turnaround. The Samaritan woman at the well meets Jesus comes to faith because of her encounter with Jesus and tells the town, come and see this man who told me all I ever did. Maybe you've had an powerful encounter like that. Or maybe there's somebody in your life whom you know who's had a powerful encounter like that. Or maybe you don't even consider yourself a Christian and you're wondering what it means to become one. But wherever you are in your faith journey, we need to take a look at this woman's dramatic story. We started last week with the beginning of this woman, the Samaritan woman's story, so I need to take some time to recap what happened for those of us who weren't here. So please turn to John 4 on page 888 of your Bibles. Page 888, easy enough. Remember, Jesus is passing through Samaria. He sits down by a well in Samaria, and a woman from Samaria comes. Samaritans and Jews did not get along. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Things are so bad that Jesus simply asking for a drink of water is seen as like a big deal. When Jesus asks for a drink, the woman says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a, from me a drink a woman of Samaria. 
And then John, the author, adds in, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And on top of that, this woman seems to have no dealings with other Samaritans either. She seems isolated. Commentators note, note that getting water was a communal practice of women in the morning. But here's this woman in the heat of the day getting water by herself. And while Jesus may have been thirsty for H2O, what he really wanted to talk about was living water with this woman. And John has already recorded several times when Jesus acts or speaks in a way that alludes to a deeper spiritual reality. So in John 2, we see the wedding at Cana. That small wedding in Cana is pointing to a cosmic wedding between the bride of Christ, us, the church, and Jesus himself. And the abundance of wine that we see in that wedding at Cana is pointing to the abundance of Christ's blood poured out through all humanity. And Jesus, with Nicodemus in John 3, Jesus is not talking. He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's not talking about coming out of his mother's birth canal. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth being born again. You see this pattern in Jacksonville? The wedding, or Jacksonville, in John's Gospel. <laughs> oh, man, ain't nothing good come out of Jacksonville. Um, uh, I'm from Jacksonville, so I can say it. Um, you see this pattern in John's Gospel? See that, John's Gospel of Jacksonville? Okay. The wedding points to the final wedding. The wine points to the ultimate blood. Birth points to being truly born again. And here in our story, H2O points to living water. And bread points to another food. So Jesus tells this woman he has living water for her. The woman says, I want it. Jesus says, call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. But after Jesus brings the woman's shameful past to light, the woman brings up the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans. Basically, she says, we worship here on this mountain. You worship in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans, like the Jews, were hoping for the king who would make the world right because the Samaritans still believed in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. They had that common foundation. And after this long discussion that's recorded in John, the woman says, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. The woman is face to face with the promised king that she's been hoping for. This king knows all her past junk, all her misguided beliefs, and in the midst of all of that, Jesus extends living water, a living, healing relationship with God that starts now and goes on forever. So how does this encounter change this woman? In this passage, the woman invites the whole town to come and see this man. There are three things I want to invite us to come and see this morning. I want us to see the personal transformation of this woman. I want us to see the community transformation in Samaria. And I want us to see the joy of this passage the personal transformation, the community transformation, and the joy. First, let's take a look at the personal transformation in this passage. 
This is a deeply personal transformation. We pick up today right at the point in the story after Jesus' big reveal. Here he is, the long-awaited Messiah. And I imagine the thoughts that are running through this woman's head as she's heading back to her town after this revelation. Something like, I'm guessing, oh my goodness, I just met the king. Oh my gosh, he knows all I ever did. Wait, but he didn't condemn me. In fact, I don't feel any shame at all. Why did I leave him? Oh, because his awkward disciple showed up. Uh, actually, I think I'm leaving because I need to tell the town about this, everyone back home, even though they never talked to me. Hold on, did he really say that the hour of true worship is right here, right now, when we can worship God freely? I feel so much lighter. Okay, I really have to tell everybody what happened. Who cares what people think of me if he knows all I did and didn't condemn me? The king of kings knows fully what this woman has done and loves her fully. She's transformed. Pastor Tim Keller writes about marriage in this book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is amazing. I make all my students read it, even though they might be far away from getting married. Uh, but some are closer than they think. Um, <laughs> he says... Um, about marriage. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us against any difficulty. Jesus here is naming all that this woman ever did, her five husbands and all, not to bring shame, but to free her from shame. It doesn't mean that everyone who comes to faith goes out and shares what they did with everyone right away. But to be a Christian does mean that we are a confessing people. Can you own before God what you have done to others and the wrong that you have done, the pain that you've caused, the dysfunction that you've brought to the table? Are there ways that you're trying to hide it? This woman still has dirt, but her dirt doesn't anymore. She actually wants to talk about this dirt. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. But she wants to talk about her dirt because it's a testimony to the way she's been washed anew. One of the things I love about the apostles Peter and Paul, two key leaders in God's early church, is how much dirt that they have and they don't hide it. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he's judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Talk about dirt. 
but I've received mercy because I've acted ignorantly in unbelief. There's the dirt washed away, not sticking. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the forefront. You see, his dirt is still there, but it's not on him anymore. It doesn't stick. It's still part of his story, but only to testify to the fact that he's been made clean. Right? And Peter, man, golly, what a knucklehead. Um, You just read the Gospels and you see how clueless he was and how far he had to come. So much dirt, but it doesn't stick anymore. Jesus knows our dirt, our five husbands and all. And yet, truly, we're loved by him and our shame is washed away. The dirt is there, but it's not sticking. We're clean. And I want to ask you, Incarnation, does shame have power over you? Of course, shame can nip at our heels. We need to turn to Jesus when it does receive his forgiveness and start anew. But I just want to mention two quick things that might indicate that some shame has power over you that shouldn't be there if you have freedom in Christ. One is if your shame is a source of isolation. If you feel so much shame that you're feeling isolated and lonely, that it's difficult to form meaning relationships with other people because you're fearful of being found out or truly known, you're not living in the freedom that Christ has won for you on the cross to wash you and make you new. The Samaritan woman is free immediately from this isolating power because of Jesus, the true king who has taken away our shame. Now, it's not always an immediate process for us, but Jesus has won for us now a life where we can be cleared of our shame, where we don't have to operate in our shame anymore. Jesus has won this for us, and, and the Samaritan experiences it. The other hint that shame might have a little bit too much power in our lives is that Christ, as Christians, we have difficulty apologizing. If we have difficulty apologizing, that might be an indication that shame has too much power in our lives. And here's what I mean. I mean a real apology. I did these specific things. I own the hurt that I caused. It was my fault. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Often we don't apologize because we're overwhelmed by the shame that we feel. To say, I screwed up, I'm sorry, it's vulnerable. We're giving up control of spinning the narrative to make us look good. It's so hard to truly apologize. But as Christians, we don't have to hold the narrative anymore because Jesus has our narrative for us. Jesus knows us completely. He's loved us truly. And he's forgiven us entirely. So we have the power to apologize, and it becomes a testament to the ultimate forgiveness that we've received. Sarah, my sister, had the experience of in, co- in college of apologizing to a couple friends who weren't Christian. And they weren't used to people actually truly apologizing, not minimizing, not explaining away, but apologizing. 
And it caused them to say, uh, what's going on with you? <laughs> um, it led to a lot of spiritual conversations. Is shame causing isolation in your life? Is shame making it difficult or impossible for you to truly apologize? Jesus wants to do a deeper work in you if you let him. But if we look at the transformation in this story, it's not just the personal transformation that this woman goes through. It is that, but it's so much more than that. The change this woman undergoes affects her whole community. Let's look and see at the communal transformation that we see in this passage. There are several stories in scripture where the transformation of one person unlocks a whole community. Zacchaeus, I think, might be one of my favorites. He was a Jewish man. He betrayed his own people by collecting taxes for the Romans and cheating them. He was responsible for the economic oppression of Jericho. And one salvation encounter with Jesus, he repents and he repays everybody that he exploited. The very thing that the Jewish people wanted, which was to Jesus to take care of the oppressors, Jesus does, but he does it in a completely different way, one that they grumble about. But his conversion, his personal transformation unlocks the economic oppression of the whole city. Or I think about the demoniac in Mark, a man in Galilee who's oppressed by many demons in Mark 5. He encounters Jesus. The demons are sent into the pigs, and the pigs drown themselves. And now these pigs are probably used for pagan sacrifices. Like this was a pig farm, essentially. And then, after kind of destroying the infrastructure of these pagan gods, this formerly demonized man goes to the 10 surrounding cities and tells everyone how Jesus set him free. Do you see the connection between personal transformation and community restoration and transformation? The gospel oftentimes, in the gospel oftentimes, they're inextricably linked. And here is another powerful example about how one encounter with this Jesus by this one on the fringes of society woman changes the whole crowd, the whole community. I want you to think about her testimony. Come see all that I ever did. I want us to fill in the blanks a little bit that she probably would have said, but John doesn't record the whole thing. Something like, you know, town, all that I ever done. It's not good. You know that I don't gather water with you, and you probably know why. You know I've had five husbands. You know all this, but I just met a Jewish man who knows, knew this too. And it was a miracle. He knew my whole story. Even though he knew my whole story, when he spoke with me, he brought me no shame. And he actually called me to worship him now with true freedom. He said that that day is here and now. He claims to be the Messiah. I believe him. This woman's transformation is so vulnerable and so radical that the town goes to see Jesus. 
Some believe because of what the woman says, that Jesus is who he says he is. Then they ask, the Samaritans ask Jesus to stay with him, and many more come to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Is this not such a crazy story? Jesus tells this woman, who is completely isolated, completely full of shame, and completely cut out from her community, he tells her, I know your whole marital history. And then he reveals he's the long way to Messiah. All her shame is gone. And she's a witness in her extreme vulnerability. And now the enemies of the Jewish people proclaim that this Jewish man is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Here is Jesus, unlocked by the testimony of an on-the-fringes woman, proclaiming the reconciliatory power of his message to all nations. All peoples are starting to see that he has the power to set the world free and to save. It all hinges on the transformation of this woman. You can't make this story up. And if you tried to make it up, you wouldn't write it like this. We've seen the personal transformation of this woman. We've seen how this personal transformation unlocks the flow of living water to the community. But I want you to finally see the joy in this story. I imagine a parade of Samaritans following the woman to come and see Jesus in verse 35. I don't know what you call a group of Samaritans. It's a gaggle of geese, a parade of Samaritans. I don't know. Um, (laughs) But look, here comes this group of Samaritans from the town. And Jesus says in verse 35, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. In the Old Testament reading today from Amos 9, the prophet Amos spoke of a day of restoration for God's people the land would be so productive that as soon as the reaper harvested the crop, the one who was sowing and plowing the fields would be right on his tails and even catch up to him, waiting for him to reap so that he could sow the seed again. There's no more flower, there's no more fallow ground. It's a time of plenty. There's such joy in the work of the kingdom of God. It's not joy that we make happen, It's joy that we walk into, that we reap the benefits of because it's already been done. Jesus says, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. In the immediate context that Jesus is speaking to, he's probably likely referring here to the Old Testament prophets, to John the Baptist, and he himself as somebody who'd labored. But the same is true for us today. When we share the incredibly liberating news of Jesus and make invitations to come and see, 
we enter into a labor that God is already doing. And in this passage, God is doing so much. We focus on the story of the woman, but the Savior of the world is is revealing himself to the least of these and bringing them out of darkness into light. We didn't even touch yet on the story of the official's son who is healed when he's about to die. But this official is likely a Roman centurion. And he comes to believe in Jesus and so does his whole household. It's a theme that's going to intensify in John's gospel as he continues. Jesus comes to his own Jewish people And while some believe, many of them reject him. But this Samaritan woman, this Roman official, and this entire household are ready to follow Jesus. Listen to John 1, the beginning. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is going to those, he's going past the people who rejected him, we see this starting now, and is starting to bring the nations to himself, to the Samaritan woman, to the whole town of Samaria, to the Roman centurion, to the Roman centurion's whole family. God is bringing the nations to himself. And he's doing it through powerful, vulnerable stories of radical transformation. When I tell my story of coming to faith, I tell the story of my household coming to faith. I talk about the transformation of my parents and the faith that became my own when they passed it on to me. While my story isn't like my friend's, Sean's, my joy is just like his. Jesus has set us free. The dirt doesn't stick. The shame is gone. Jesus wants to name all that you ever did not to shame you, but to set you free. Are you walking in that freedom, friends? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would start anew a work of healing in this congregation, that you would set us free that dirt that feels like has been sticking on us would be named, washed off, and be turned around as a testament to your power and to your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.